like you to turn to Genesis uh, chapter 38, and um, I will pray to start, okay? Father God, I thank you for this gathering today, that we can come and we can celebrate the one who has come. I pray that the words that are spoken today and sung will be a cup of water to thirsty souls. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our adult Bible fellowship class went through Genesis quite extensively uh, for some time. And when we came to chapter 38, this is what I told them. Do yourself a favor, skip it. Just skip right over it. It's, it's kind of in a weird spot. It's in the middle of the Joseph story. And it's, it's there's just, don't bother, right? Obviously, that's not true. It was a little facetious on my part. And although we were skipping it in our study for other reasons, there was this psychological impact that had been made. And maybe it's being made in your mind right now because you're wondering right now what is in there. Right. And so while you cruise through that, let me just say this. The Bible, if you haven't figured this out already, is R-rated. It's R-rated because it reflects the real lives of real people. Real people do things that are destructive and are self-serving and off track. And that's one reason that we need to love this book all the more. Um, It's one reason that we should trust it all the more. If we were making this story up, nobody includes these sorts of happenings in their account of how God came to be a human being. There's no way that that happens. And yet, here it is. Here it is, right in front of us. And it tells us a great deal about the God that we follow. The Bible isn't so much about, here's how to live a good life so God will like you, as it is about... Here's how the grace of God breaks through to people who would otherwise be crushed under their own brokenness. And so, now that you've skimmed the chapter while I've been talking and you've seen what's there first, let me say there will be another question and answer time right after the service. I will be right up here uh, after the service. And if you have any questions about this text or any topic we've covered today, come and ask. Second, here's... Here are the things that we need to talk about in this chapter. We need to talk about a prodigal, we need to talk about a prostitute, and we need to talk about the pointing of fingers. So we'll do that. I hesitated to use the P alliteration. That's kind of old school preaching. Um, But it just kind of fell onto the page, and so I'll go with it. In college, I had a sermon that I had to turn in once, and it was about heaven. And there were like 53 points, and they all started with P. Like, heaven is pleasurable, Uh, it'll be peaceful, we'll be in his presence, there won't be any pain, Uh, we'll be with his people. I might have even said that it would be purple, I don't know, I didn't know any better, right? And um, when I got the paperback, the professor had just written below the grade, the peas made me puke. (laughs) So, I hope the peas don't make you puke this morning, and if they do, you're in good company and you and Kenny Bowles can have a great Christmas together. Okay. A prodigal, a prodigal. 
You're familiar probably with the famous prodigal in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus tells this story. It's about a son who asks for his inheritance while his father is still living. And amazingly, the father gives his son this inheritance. And then he goes far away from his dad and the family he lives with. And he lives the way he wants. And he does what he wants, when he wants. And he spends his money how he wants, however his urges tell him to. And in the end, he finds himself destitute. And he comes back home where the father is waiting. And the father opens his arms and welcomes him. And Jesus uses that story to teach us about ourselves and the way that God sees us and what he will do for us as the true older brother later on. And lots of great teaching points from from Luke chapter 15. But long before Jesus will tell that story, we have Genesis 38. And we have this guy named Judah. Judah is the name you recognize from last week. Judah is the son born to Leah. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Judah, of all of Jacob's sons, was the one child in his generation that was chosen by God to carry the promise to the next generation. He is it. And there's where things get interesting. And it's why chapter 38 is here. Because the question is, where will the next child of promise come from? Because we have all kinds of issues right away. Here's what the text says in Genesis 38, that Judah went down from his brothers. It means he left his family. He probably abandoned the family values. He went down, he went away. And he turned aside to a certain Adulamite. That's what the text says. Adulam was a city in Canaan. God repeats his warnings throughout the Old Testament about his people getting involved with Canaanites. And we find out later that the guy he becomes friends with is named Hira. And Judah must have adopted ungodly ways rather quickly. This phrase, turned aside, probably means he's accepting the ways of the foreigners that he's living amidst, their way of life. And when that happens, it's not a real difficult leap for the next thing for him to be to adopt different gods. And when that happens, after that, he marries a Canaanite woman named Shua. And that's another indication from God that he put, uh, that he's abandoned the God of his great grandfather, Abraham and his, um, and his ways. And he has adopted false gods. And so then he has three sons and The first two are so far removed from God that the text just tells us that God put them to death. Uh, We don't get much explanation about that. So here's Judah. He's the one child of promise in his generation, the one that will carry the seed to the next generation so that somewhere down the line, the true seed and prophet and priest and king will come. And we find right away that he has rejected his family. He's moved to a foreign land. He's adopted their ways. He is likely worshiping their gods. He's taken a foreign wife and he has sons that are so depraved in God's eyes that they have to be killed. And most experts feel that the reason God does this is so that they don't become the carriers of the promise themselves. And it's not by accident that lots of commentators choose to label Judah as the prodigal of the Old Testament. He's followed the same path as the son in Jesus' story. He's left home. He's abandoned his family. He's abandoned his God. And he's wasting the promise he has inherited. That's Judah. But here's the truth. And the fact remains, he is the one 
child, the bearer of the promise, the one who will carry it to the next generation. And so the question is, how will this promise move move forward from a prodigal like this? What will happen that will allow us to get to the ultimate one child to come? And the answer is that no one could make this up. You don't write a story about how God came into the world and include this in it. When we first hear the name Tamar, it's because she's chosen by Judah as a wife for his first evil son. God puts that son to death, and so Tamar is now without a husband. Judah then institutes a Leverite marriage situation with Tamar and his next son. Again, that's a question and answer time uh, kind of discussion if you want to know about that. And the next son is also wicked, and so God puts him to death too. And no, no problem, you say, as we read the text, because how many sons does he have? Three. Next son, third son, you're up. You get to marry Tamar next. But Judah doesn't go that route. Judah calls Tamar in, his daughter-in-law, who he alone holds responsibility for because of the Leverite situation that he's instituted. And he tells her this, my third son is still young. I want you to go back to where you came from and stay a widow until my third son, Shelah, grows up. And what this is kind of similar to is the close of the interview, where you're interviewing for the job, and they say to you as you leave, don't call us, we'll call you. That's what Judah has done to Tamar. And it's important that you understand where that puts her culturally. As, as we've said in previous weeks, right, with Leah and Sarah, uh, the value of a woman in this day and age is heavily dependent upon her marriage status. If you are uh, married and have lots of kids it means you're relatively secure in your standing in society. If you are married without kids, it puts you at a disadvantage. That's where Sarah was two weeks ago. If you are unmarried or worse, widowed and no children, then that puts you in the least attractive bracket of society that existed in that day. And so that's where Tamar is. She is marginalized. She is cast off. She is alienated. She is discriminated against. We would probably use this word. She is disenfranchised. Okay? Now, every society operates with rules like this. They are unwritten, but they are well known. Ours works exactly the same way. It's just that we put something else in that slot of what's important. In our society, successful living isn't too dependent on being married or having kids, but try to live in our society without an education. And see how that goes for a while. This is where Tamar was. Exploited. She doesn't have the basic conditions that will allow her to function acceptably in her society. Except there's one more notable issue in her life. As if her plight wasn't bad enough, wasn't impossible enough. Her added hurdle is this. That the one person in her life that could give her what she needed to have in order to function adequately in her culture, that person refused to help. Don't call us. We'll call you. Of course, that person is Judah, right? Verse 11 will clear up the picture for us. It tells us why he sent Tamar home. 
why he forced her to be a widow, why he had no intention whatsoever of giving her to his third son. What does it say in verse 11? It says this. He, being Judah, feared that he, being Shelah, his third son, would die like his brothers. And in that statement, we see the conclusion that Judah has come to. He, he already has had not one but two sons die, and he's not willing to let that happen to a third. And with all the evidence he has, two sons are dead. And the only common denominator between their deaths is Tamar, the woman they were married to. And his conclusion, it's probably one that you and I would come up with too, right? Is that Tamar has something to do with their deaths. It's her fault. She's to blame. She probably put something in the soup. And so... Whatever I can do to her, she deserves it. Go away, Tamar. Be a widow. Don't call us. We'll call you. You're not ever going to even get close to the one son I have left. Now, because of the way their world worked, Tamar was stuck. She legally belonged to the family of Judah. She can't go get married to somebody else because she's pledged, even though it's deceptively, to be married to Judah's youngest son, right? And in the meantime, she's a widow. She has no husband. She has no kids. She has no possibilities of someone to intervene. She is disenfranchised. And Judah, the only one that could help, surely won't. The prodigal. The prostitute. Tamar is backed into a corner. And so she comes up with a plan. And from the text, it's clear that the motivation for her plan is a desire that justice be done. Judah had done an unjust, exploitive thing and put her in an unwinnable situation. And what she's after is justice. The wrong must be righted, she thinks. And she thinks, how do I make that happen? And the plan she came up with is not one that you and I would probably come up with. Uh... Her plan is to pose as a prostitute. Here's how the text reads, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. A few notes about that little chunk of text. First, Judah's wife has died. He himself is now a widower. The time of sheep shearing, I need you to think, Uh, Very hard work, all the shepherds getting together in a certain place, but also very hard partying, okay? Uh, Think business conference combined with spring break. That's probably what's going on. There's not a lot of Bible study going on. Uh, What what happens in Timnah stays in Timnah, that, that kind of thing. And on top of that, who does he hang out with? His friend, Hira, the Adulamite, the Eddie Haskell of Canaan. 
No problem, Mrs. Cleaver. I'll take care of him. Make sure he gets home okay. Wink, wink, right? Uh, Tamar learns of the trip, and her plan is to trap him so that she has some leverage, so that she has the chance maybe to turn the tables a little bit. And so she dresses as a prostitute. She hangs out on a corner that she knows he'll go by, and she waits. Now let me stop right there, because I don't want you to skip by one crucial element. This is not a main point of the sermon, but it is a crucial element that determines the success or failure of Tamar's plan. Her whole plan relies on what she knows dearly, and that is the character of Judah. She knows what kind of man he is. She knows his tendencies. She knows his proclivities. She knows his flaws. She knows the false gods that he worships, the ones that will tell him that seeing a prostitute is like an act of worship, so it's cool. And when he walks by that corner, she knows what he'll choose. Does Satan work the same way? Man, he doesn't have to know our hearts. He doesn't have to be clairvoyant and read our minds. All he has to do is study a little bit. Just watch us. Figure out where we go. And is it, is it any wonder that we get caught in the traps that he sets? Sure enough, Judah turns out to be 100% predictable. And he barters with her for services, and she barters back. And what ultimately happens is that she asks for and gets his signet and his cord and his staff. No need to go into what those things mean. The bottom line is that she got, in lieu of payment, his wallet, his keys, and his credit cards. All right? Everything she needs to steal his identity, and that's what she's after, his identity. You thought identity theft was a new thing? Uh Uh-uh, Genesis 38. And they go their separate ways, and as a result of this encounter, Tamar becomes pregnant. Verse 24 says that three months later, Judah is informed, your daughter-in-law, the one pledged to your youngest son, is pregnant. And what's worse, Judah, it's because she has become a prostitute. And just as Judah is predictable, this next sequence of events is as well, because this begins the pointing of fingers, right? The first finger is obviously pointed at Tamar by Judah. She's the one who's crossed the line, and her pregnancy shows it. And when Judah hears this and speaks, he just says two things, two words in the Hebrew. And when he says them, we understand two things. First, there's a validation at play. You can hear him say to himself, I knew it. I knew there was something going on. I knew there was something bad with her. My feeling all along was that she was the reason so much calamity came to my life. She was the reason my sons are gone. And now I have proof that she's the poison. Second, by his words that he says, there is a double standard that comes to light. The double standard is this. Sexual activity is okay for me. But the same behavior is a red letter for you, Tamar. The idea in the story is this, Tamar, you're a woman. 
Go be resigned to a life of widowhood while I, the widower, the man, do whatever I want. And it's this double standard that Tamar uses, that Tamar points to, this inequity. She uses it it to expose Judah in order that justice will happen. So the words that came from Judah's mouth when he heard what Tamar had done, in the Hebrew, it's very concise. There's just two words. He says, take burn. That's all he says. You can see the fire in his eyes. The words show how much hatred for Tamar was in his heart. As he points his finger at her and says, take burn. And we're right to ask this. Burn her for what, Judah? For the same thing that you did. Hmm. Well, the next finger is pointed at Judah because the plan has worked, has it not? The smoking gun is in Tamar's evidence file and just at the right time. This is such a Hollywood moment. There should be a movie, right? Verse 25, as she was being brought out, literally as she was being dragged to the fire, she reveals her evidence. And she says this, by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And then she says, this is what the ESV says, please identify whose these are. And she unveils the driver's license and the keys and the credit cards. But probably the NIV is better. It just says, do you recognize these? And the Hebrew is really fun to say. I'm going to have you say it with me. It says, hacker na. Everybody say, hacker. Just really get the phlegm going back there. Hacker. Na. Hacker na. You can, you can say it, really. Hacker na. Very good. Very good. The idea is recognize. Do you recognize it? And it's a theme throughout Genesis. Uh, it comes up at several points. Jacob goes into Isaac's tent. You remember this from last week. And he's dressed in goat skins to steal the blessing of his brother Esau. And he says to his father Isaac that it's me, Esau. And Isaac doesn't hocker nah. He doesn't recognize him. Later, Jacob's sons will bring a blood-stained robe to him after they have sold Joseph into slavery. They've killed a goat. They've stained his uh, robe with the blood. They bring it to their father and they say, do you hocker nah? Do you recognize whose this is? And when these same brothers find themselves in front of the prime minister of Egypt, their brother, Joseph, he hakarnas them, but they don't hakarna him until the end when he says, it's me, it's Joseph, your brother. In the Middle Ages, there's a Hebrew rabbinical commentary on Genesis 38 that goes something like this. Uh, the Holy One, praise be he, said to Judah, you deceived your father with a goat. Tamar will deceive you with a goat. Your father said, Hakarnah. By your life, Tamar will say to you, Hakarnah. Do you recognize these? And Tamar has all the ID she needs. And what is going on here is just a little bit more than physical identification. The question isn't just about determining the father of a child. 
It goes way deeper than that. The question is about justice. It's about a wrong being righted. And the only way to do that is to level the playing field. In Tamar's situation, let's face it, she is outmatched. He's a wealthy man with powerful friends and a standing among his peers. She's a trampled widow accused of foul play in the deaths of the men in her life. And now in everyone else's eyes, she has seemingly turned to a life on the street. And the only way she turns the tables is on the off chance that he will recognize what he's done and realize that it is a reflection of who he is. And that's what she's really asking Judah, do you recognize yourself? Do you see the person you've become? Do you realize the prodigal that you really are? Hakernah. And that third finger that is pointed. If we didn't have the text, we could write the end of this story. We would write that Judah pointed the last finger, right? He would point it back in Tamar's face and he would have the last word, even in the face of the evidence, because after all, he was tricked. She was the one who was grossly immoral, and it would end in verse 24. And that third and final finger would be Judah's pointed at Tamar, and Tamar would get her punishment. And we could all easily see how that would be an acceptable end to the story. And if that were the way it was written when we came to Genesis chapter 38, we would point to it and we would say, the moral of the story is don't be like Tamar. But that's not how the story ends. Verse 26 is where the story turns. And it's a good thing it does, because the question we started with is still unanswered. Where will the one child come from? Judah is the promise, but he's widowed. His sons have been wiped out. His youngest son is steeped in a foreign culture, and it's God's. And the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 hangs in the balance of what Judah will do next. His next move. It all depends on Judah. Ultimately, the one who will save us all, the one child who will come way down the line, depends on what Judah does right now. And something clicks. He sees this evidence. And maybe for the first time in forever. I mean, how long has he been in this foreign land after all? He recognizes the items in front of him as his own, but he also recognizes what he has done to this girl and to his own family and the double standard that he has always considered no big deal, but now all of a sudden it is. And his words are recorded this way as he points his finger not at Tamar, but at himself. He says this, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And we need to unpack a few things from that. Number one, Judah did realize his sin. He woke up to his wrong. He realized who he really was, a sinner. His sin was that he refused to do the one thing that was in his power to do, to help the one who was powerless and without an advocate. And he woke up to that. He realized, I did wrong. Number two. He did not ignore Tamar's sin. That's very important. There's no declaration in this text that Tamar was justified in what she did. The fact is that she did act as a prostitute. She did trick Judah. She did commit sin. And yet, number three, the thing that will maybe warp your mind a little today, 
is what we draw out of the story as a whole, based on these words. She is more righteous than I am. Judah recognizes his sin. He doesn't ignore hers. But the final idea here is that her sin is secondary compared to his own. She is more righteous than I am. In our circles, we have a pretty stable list when it comes to sin. Think about that list that would come to your mind. That list includes all sorts of wrongdoing, right? From trivial texting while driving to major violations that we would all put at the top. And they're all ranked. And as we read this story with the context that we live in, what we see is a sin of a sexual nature going on, and immediately we register it with our list. And needless to say, it is pretty high on the major violation side. But the text has something to tell us. It tells us that there's something else going on here. And it seems to be an even bigger deal to God than who solicited who and who did what on what street corner. And so here's three quick things that you need to write down about this text. Number one, social justice is a huge, big, big deal to God. Did I say it was big? It's huge. What was Judah's sin? It was the sin of injustice. Hear me say this again. Tamar sinned. We're not dismissing her sin. Judah doesn't dismiss her sin. We don't need to do that either. Nevertheless, he doesn't point his finger at her. He points it at himself and he says, I am the bigger sinner. Judah's injustice is way worse than what she did. And our lesson from that is that God is hugely concerned that his people who have the power to do so meet the needs of those who are unable to meet their own. Social justice, let's define it because that's not a phrase we use a lot. It means that I do on behalf of others because I alone have the power to help. It's an easy definition. And I need you to be honest, think through your sin list. Where does that live on your sin list? Is it even there? When we have the power to help the powerless and we don't, Tamar is better off than we are. Here's two. The people who understand grace are consistently pointing the finger at themselves and not everybody else. Are the words of Jesus ever true? He he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know... Before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye, you ought to take care of that log in your own because it's a tree trunk. And we could press this to the limit with this story. I mean, maybe the sexual sin that I so despise in other people to the point that I have formed opinions and made jokes and pre-planned my actions. If I ever run across them, maybe that's a speck. And maybe the tree trunk that God sees as sin in my own eye is every time I have the power and resources to help someone else, but I say no. Judah despised Tamar. She was the evil. She was the bad. But Judah recognized himself. And once he did, he's able to look at the one he used to despise and say, 
she's more righteous than I am. Can we do that as people of God? Can we look at those people that we have certain feelings about that don't measure up in our book, that have troubles because they just heap it on themselves, because they're the worst kind of sinners, whatever it is. Can we look at those people that we despise and say, it's not them, it's us. We are the real sinners in this world. They are more worthy of Christ's love than I am. That's what Judah does. Number three, I have the ability to declare others righteous. I've never thought about what superpower I would choose if I had the chance. I don't really think about those things. But as this sermon uh, was being worked up, I thought, what would I choose? Would I choose to fly? Would I choose uh, strength, super strength, right? Stretchability might be nice to, you know, from the easy chair, reach into the refrigerator in the kitchen. What would I pick? Super speed. What we all get from this text is a superpower. We have the ability to point to somebody else and declare them righteous. That's what Judah does. On your card, hopefully, are things that you are thankful for. You filled it up. Right? We should all be able to fill it up. If you didn't physically do it, at least in your mind, you know what you're thankful for. Guess what? Those things are the powers in your life that you alone will be able to use to help others who are in helpless situations. I would bet that there are a lot of people who wrote on their cards items and things that nobody else in the room wrote. That means you alone have that ability, that asset, that thing that you can use to share with somebody else, to speak into their life, to give them worth, to show them that they are lovable, to point the finger at them and say, you are righteous, you are worth something. Leverage those things, give them away. To refuse is to sin worse than the worst sins we can think of. As a result of this event... Judah turns a corner, and he is never the same. Later in the book of Genesis, when Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they still don't know him, he sets a trap, and he catches Benjamin with the silver cup. You remember that story. Bottom line is that he brings them all in front of him, and he tells all of the brothers, all of you can go except this one who has stolen the cup. And of Benjamin, he says, he must stay here and be punished. And of all of the brothers, it's Judah. Judah. Judah stands up for Benjamin. And he says, take me instead. He has returned to his brothers. The prodigal has come home. And he's willing to be a savior. Tamar has twins. Not one child, but two. And one of them is named Perez, who will become the one child, the father of Jesus. And Perez will carry the promise to the next generation. And generations later, there's a line in the book of Ruth. When Ruth and Boaz are being married at the end of the book, there's kind of a wedding toast that mentions Perez and Tamar. And it goes like this. You can imagine the wedding party kind of holding up their glasses. And this is what was said. May your house... Be like the house of Perez, 
whom Tamar bore to Judah. It was a blessing. And we get the idea that there aren't any check marks against Tamar. She's spoken of in a positive light. And on top of that, she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. Women didn't get included in lists like that. But there's Tamar's name. Why is she there? It's because Judah declared her righteous when she was dead in the water. And she got her life back. Judah was able to say to Tamar, in spite of your sin, you are righteous. The incest, the deception, I will cover it all. And Tamar was saved. And that righteous declaration by Judah is a foreshadowing. It's a precursor. The truth is that none of us here on earth can point at somebody else and truly declare somebody else righteous in the eyes of God. But what Judah does points to the true Judah, the one child who will come, who will look at us and in spite of our sin, he will declare us righteous. And it will mean that we can stand before a holy God as righteous and holy. And here's the good news. When we are drug out with our sins exposed, headed to the fire, He is the one who points his finger, not at us as we deserve, but he points it at himself. He says this, Father, I'm pointing the finger of judgment at myself, says Christ, the true Judah. I'm taking on their sins so that you will declare me a sinner. And in this way, your finger will be able to point at them and say, righteous. That's the gospel. That's why we're here today. This one child who comes into the world into a manger ends up taking our sins as his own so that we can take on his righteousness. Maybe this sermon is the least Christmassy you've ever heard. Or maybe it's the most. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that Jesus pointed his finger at us and declared us righteous when we were dead in the water in our sins, when we were being drugged to the fire. He intervened. He said, I will take on their sin. I will be that sacrifice. I will be that one child to die for them. That puts us in an incredible place. God, would you help us to go? Would you help us to live the grace that we have been given? We have the opportunity to point fingers at other people, not of condemnation, but of righteousness. And we do that through our actions, through our words, through our love. Help us to be the loving people that you died for. It's in Jesus' name we pray.